Hey there, everyone. This is Dan Fagella with Tech Emergence, where we interview entrepreneurs, investors, and researchers in the domain of emerging technology. Although we've talked a lot recently about startup success, artificial intelligence, brain-machine interface, we've yet to talk about another component of, of the research of consciousness, which is psychedelics. And today I'm lucky enough to be joined by Brad Birch, who is a communications director of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, and he's with me on the line right now. Brad, how are you? Fantastic. Okay, yeah, I'm excited to be able to catch up. And really one of the first topics I'd like to delve into, because, again, one of the bigger interests here at, at Tech Emergence is sort of that intersection of technology and psychology, what that it means and implies for consciousness and the ethical ramifications thereof. Um, how thus far, I mean, I, I imagine I'm asking you to sum up a lot of academic stuff in a relatively short time here, but um, how so far has psychedelic research helped to inform an understanding of consciousness and human experience, just to give us a little backdrop? Psychedelics have a long history, uh, a lot longer than they're often given credit for when we're educated about them these days. We're often educated about them in a very misinformed and propagandized context. Huh. Uh, in, in the, uh, in the uh, structure of the war on drugs, anybody familiar with the DARE program, which I certainly went through, you know, we're taught to fear psychedelics because of their destabilizing influence, because of their association with counterculture of the 1960s and 1970s. And that's just... It's, 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 it's the wrong story, and it starts in the wrong place. Psychedelics actually have a very long history of use uh, in, in human civilization and in human society. It's only in the last uh, 70 or even 40 years that psychedelics have been criminalized. So psychedelics, uh, we're talking about ayahuasca, mescaline, ibogaine, uh, peyote, which contains mescaline. Uh, these, these substances that have been used for hundreds, if not thousands of years by indigenous cultures for ceremonial and spiritual purposes. So this conversation that we're having now about psychedelics as useful tools for consciousness, transformation, and evolution, that's um, uh, it's an old conversation that we're just now getting started again in a modern Western context. Huh. So in a more modern Western context, one of my favorite stories is how LSD, lysergic acid diethylamide, which was first discovered in the early 1940s, a Swiss chemist who was working in a lab who accidentally discovered it, is that LSD was actually part of the story of our discovery of the human serotonin system. Of course, serotonin, we now know, is a fundamental building block of human consciousness. It's a chemical created in the human body that, that is, is part of our gut system, it's part of our central nervous system and our brain and our eyes, and it's associated with attention and awareness. Where our attention goes, there serotonin goes, and vice versa. So LSD, because it mimics serotonin so well, well, it, it was having this very powerful effect on consciousness and, and awareness, and researchers were fascinated by it when it first came out. So they asked, well, how is this working? And they discovered the system where it fits like a key into a lock in the human brain, and suddenly we discovered neurotransmitters, which unlocks an entire realm, of course, of neuroscience yeah. and psychopharmacology that's still developing today. It's very similar to cannabis and the discovery of the endocannabinoids. It, so, so that's just one way. Wow, okay, got it. So, so that's a, uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so the intelligence, you know, the neuropsychopharmacology that these substances draw our attention to, but also in this new modern context where we're looking at psychedelics as treatments, as part of treatments for mental illness. What they're showing us is that our current approaches to medical practice, where we drug people, we cover up symptoms, 
uh, and we keep people on drugs for their entire lives in order to moderate symptoms of physical and mental illness, is that those systems are wrong, and that there are better ways of getting at, uh, at getting at the innate healing process that are part of the human body than that, and we're finding that psychedelics can be part of that. And where, where are we seeing that treated sort of, I suppose, you know, even going through my graduate studies at the University of Pennsylvania and, and even having maybe a, a little bit of an outside-of-the-box view on psych uh, from the positive psychology perspective and looking at some of those kind of further-reaching uh, aspects of human potential in addition to just sort of the, the traditional um, psychoanalytic or, or kind of cognitive elements of, of psych. Um, you know, I, I can admit I, I had very little exposure to the use of psychedelics. Where now are we seeing those applications, or are you seeing those applications that, that seem most meaningful? Well, psychedelics, uh, I like to think about them as tools. I like to think about them as especially powerful tools. A little bit before the show here, we were talking about comparing them to nuclear weapons or, or, or nuclear technology. Uh, that, that very powerful tool that can either power entire cities or it can be used to eliminate, to decimate entire cities. Psychedelics are similar in the sense that they're powerful tools that can be used for a lot of different purposes. And uh, we see them being used irresponsibly, and we see them being used carefully. So as, as we move forward as a culture to reintegrate these psychedelics into, into our lives and into our medicine and into our science, we have to be careful how we're using them. And there are ways to find that out, and that's through careful scientific research. So there's one way that psychedelics are being used, and that's in a grossly irresponsible sense by the ring scene and the club and the club scene. And that's not necessarily the fault of the people who are there. You think it's it's the fault of the miseducation system that results in the lack of adequate resources to provide support and care for people who are using these drugs. I also mm. like to point out that you know, Dan, that there's, there's there's not really such a thing as a safe drug, uh, and, and, and psychedelics because of their dramatic effect on human consciousness. Uh, they can uh, they can push us to the extreme, and so what we're currently faced with is a system that prohibits any use of psychedelics. And so now what we're doing is we're exploring a clinical scientific setting. Us here at the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, also other organizations around the world, we're looking at these compounds in in specifically therapeutic settings, in safe settings where there's adequate emotional support, adequate physical and medical support for these these tools, and we're finding that they dramatically can increase the effectiveness of psychotherapy. That's a very different thing than talking about the widespread illicit recreational use of painted and adulterated compounds in criminal contexts. That's showing that these tools can be used to help people heal from post-traumatic stress disorder, to overcome addiction, uh, and, and, and things that we haven't even begun exploring yet. Yeah, where, where are we seeing, so let's use post-traumatic stress disorder as sort of a, a touch point there. I mean, that's something I'd gone into a little bit in, in grad school, and Seligman's pretty involved uh, in the the military community with the Army and, and some other things along those lines. Um, what specifically drug-wise or how specifically integration with treatment-wise are we seeing psychedelics used in just that instance? Just to get a nice tangible example for folks, even like myself, who are less familiar with how these drugs are, are getting reintegrated.
patented MDMA, but nobody used it. Nobody tested it on anybody. It, it, it disappeared for a long time. It was used briefly by the U.S. Army in chemical weapons testing. Uh, and then it disappeared again because it wasn't useful in chemical weapons testing. It wasn't useful for what the Army and the military was trying to do. It then reemerged in the late 1970s and early 1980s when a group of psychotherapists in Northern California started using it in their practice. And they found that MDMA, this drug that opened up people's uh, senses of connection and trust, could help psychotherapy. Huh. So MDMA, it's, uh, it rapidly became very popular in the club scene. And there was a club in Dallas that uh, started selling it before it was made illegal. And the club owners there, they dumped it ecstasy. Then it, it, it flew off the shelves and started a national panic. And, and, and we're, we're now kind of, we're, we're still in that national panic. The DEA emergency scheduled it in 1985 because of the widespread recreational use. And most psychotherapy using MDMA just disappeared. And the research just disappeared for almost two decades. Wow. The researchers at Mapping started it again. So a lot of people have used this drug in recreational settings. We're talking millions and millions of people, especially young people, and they're still using it. The issue is that in recreational settings, most of what's now known as ecstasy, or now Molly, which is the new brand name that's attached to it, doesn't even contain any MDMA at all. Huh. So in, in the context of psychotherapy, we're using pure MDMA that's manufactured in a very pure and controlled context. So MDMA, it enhances feelings of trust. It works uh, directly on the amygdala to reduce senses of fear. It, it opens up consciousness and awareness of memories, and as well as awareness of the present moment by working on the frontal cortex. So in the context of psychotherapy, that can be very valuable. In the context of a nightclub, that can be very dangerous or very risky because you're not necessarily in a safe place. And you might have these feelings of trust and intimacy in situations where, where maybe you shouldn't. And, and that's yeah. why we see people often getting hospitalized or taking other drugs or, or, or being sexually assaulted in those cases. But in the context of psychotherapy, when you, you have that lowering of defense, you have that opening up of trust, it can help people with post-traumatic stress disorder in particular come to a different relationship with their difficult memories. That's actually one of the hallmarks of PTSD, what makes it so difficult to treat, is that because somebody goes through a powerful traumatic experience, either a veteran in war or somebody who's sexually assaulted or somebody who experiences a natural disaster, that memory is so difficult and it's so terrifying that it's hard to recall it. It's hard to think about, and it's very hard to even talk about with a therapist. So what we're finding in our study is that MDMA can dramatically improve the effectiveness of psychotherapy for people with some of the worst kinds of PTSD. Wow. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, just one, one of many, I imagine, steps uh, forward with these uh, tools of consciousness as you had placed it um, in terms of actual functional use. And that's very curious that uh, ecstasy sort of had its origins there and now no longer contains what was originally uh, what it was originally dubbed for. That's, a, that's actually a rather rather curious point. I, I wonder how it kept its same name. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's very, it's very interesting. It, it, the, the, the criminal market, the fact of a criminal market, the fact that there's no regulations or systems of accountability for manufacturers of MDMA now, uh, 
it, it results in the adulteration of compounds. It, it creates a market incentive for drug organizations, underground drug organizations, to adulterate it and to sell it as what it's not. Huh, curious. Um, okay, interesting. And now, just because I realize we're around the halfway-ish point, a, a lot of the the interesting explorations into elements of consciousness, you had mentioned sort of you know, increasing feelings of, of trust, op opening up sort of our, our senses, feelings, emotions, thoughts, memories. Um, a, a, there's a lot of talk in, in sort of the transhuman side of things about enhancing what is going on upstairs, so to speak, uh, whether that be an extension of, of our uh, memory, of our uh, empathetic sense, of our feelings of happiness to levels that humans are not presently capable of, and, and what a transhuman consciousness uh, may not only be capable of in the first place, but maybe the directions we might want to go in those explorations as we're able to digitally enhance uh, what's happening uh, neurologically. Where for you might psychedelics start to inform maybe the best steps forward there or what's maybe already happening there? Where do you see that crossover? Thanks. That's really fun. Yeah, I, I, I think a lot, this may seem off topic, but Go for it. I promise, I promise. <laughs> uh, I, I think a lot about ant colonies or, or, or bee colonies or the view of cityscapes from an airplane. I think about these multi-linked massively connected organisms that have greater extent, greater durability over time than individual organisms. Now, psychedelics have a capacity to dissolve what we refer to as the ego, or what we refer to as the sense of the individual self. And MDMA, LSD, ayahuasca, DMT, there's a lot of psychedelic compounds that when used in the right setting with the right intention um, and used very carefully can facilitate the sense of expanded awareness, the sense of interconnection. And on one hand, it can, it can reduce defenses, making psychotherapy easier. It can reduce fear, making anxiety, for example, about death uh, be reduced. But it can also facilitate the sense of interpersonal connection. And I think that's what a lot of people who are using psychedelics on their own outside of clinical or therapeutic context are looking for. You know, we live in a world that's really segmented and it's uh, we're separated really by technology. But technologies, of course, also have the opportunity to bring us together. We're, we're, we're talking here on the phone. It's you know, true. That's, that's, that's something that we wouldn't have been able to do without that. So I think a lot of the problems that we face in the society right now are, are, are the problems of short-sightedness, problems of let's just make as much money as we can and capitalize on what we can just for ourselves without even thinking about future generations. And that's why we have catastrophic nuclear disasters in Fukushima, and that's why we have uh, week-long traffic jams in China, and that's why the bees are dying, that's why we're addicted to drugs as a nation and as a culture, because we're so self-focused. And hmm. what we can accomplish with psychedelics when used responsibly is to create this sense of perspective, this perspective where we're connected to each other, and if we're connected to each other, we have to work together to survive on this planet. So I think that's one way that psychedelics are increasingly being recognized as, as, as being used for, and, and hopefully in the future we're going to create more legitimate contexts where that's possible. And, yeah, and there's a lot of interesting thought around that, and what we can riff around around those related topics is, um, you know, I, I think on the aggregate, and I forget where I read this originally, but on the aggregate, I, 
you know, we're doing a little bit better with cooperation than maybe we did 4,000 years ago with a whole